Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Listen closely. That's not just paint rolling on a wall. It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select Eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. Mm, It's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore. See the love. Hello and welcome to Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello. Uh, I hope that you've had a good week. I received lots and lots of messages about uh, the episode with Laura Checkley last week. I was delighted by um, how many of you enjoyed it. Um, I think she's just brilliant. And uh, I was really delighted, yeah, with all the feedback that I got. So thank you for that. Thank you to those that have uh, sent in messages or left me a little review or tweeted or insted or, or even if you've just thought I really enjoy it. Thank you to you as well. Uh, how has my week been? Well, when I say that and I'm sort of talking to nobody in this little cupboard in my flat, it sort of feels like I'm about to go into a therapy session with you lot listening out there. Um, I'm not going to, not today. But how has my week been? Do you know what? The first half of the week was great. And then I finished a job that I've been really, really enjoying. I've been doing something a little bit different. Um, sort of some, It's sort of a hosting, presenting job. Another uh, podcast, but something a bit different. And... It's been really fun. I've been working with a really great group of people. It's been quite a lot of work for the last six weeks and been quite intense. And I've really, really enjoyed it. And I really loved everyone that we were working with. And so it ended this week and I had the classic. And I always get it and I'm never prepared for it. I get a bit of a post-job slump. And um, for a couple of days I felt a bit like, no, no, I had my nice job and now it's gone. And then I had had to give myself a bit of a shake and think, no, Suze, you were really lucky to have that job and it worked out really well and it was really great that you had such a brilliant experience on it and why not try and accentuate the positive? And so that's what I'm trying to do and that's what I've been doing since and uh, I feel a lot better. And yesterday, I was meant to... Yesterday, which was Friday, it's Saturday morning at the moment. Uh, yesterday, I was meant to do a writing thing and I had I was like I'm going to write some new material it's going to be really great and I'm going to do this I'm going to do that I have all these ideas and then I woke up in the morning and thought do you know what I just don't fancy it today I was meant to go to the gym first thing as well and I just thought do you know what just not today I'm not I don't think I'm going to write anything funny I don't think I'm going to do a good workout so I cancelled it all and instead Alice my partner and I and two of our really good friends went and had a really nice lunch outside so we all felt very safe and just had a really good laugh and it turns out I needed that far more than any new jokes or going to the gym so um, I've woken up feeling lots lots brighter which is great Um, this week's episode is I think a really really special one it's with the Reverend Richard Coles who I mean he's just such a wonderful guy and I really really like him and I think he's brilliant and I'm really touched that he took the time out I think he's really busy at the moment 
and um, I really touched you took the time out to chat to me now before I share that conversation with you as always I'll um, share a couple of emails from our listeners so here's the first one it's titled I did not expect that I've just finished today's episode with Laura Checkley I've listened to all of your podcasts and been moved by so many of the people that you've talked to but today with Laura it just blew the wind out of me in a good way what Laura said about shame hanging over her for longer than she realised resonated with me massively. My story is very similar to hers. I grew up being friends with everyone, but never really having a BFF. That's best friends forever, if you don't know, if you're from abroad, maybe. I didn't have that BFF that everyone else seemed to have. When I was a teenager, people started calling me gay. And I didn't want to be gay, but I was bullied for it. So I would go to parties and snog boys, and when asked by friends who I fancied, I would always say someone. When I first kissed a girl, it blew my mind. But as soon as we stopped, she told me she wasn't gay and I was jolted back into reality and I said that I wasn't either. We became best friends, but when we were alone, we would kiss all the time. But when her friends started to ask her if she was in a relationship with me, she denied it and completely cut me off and then started going out with a guy. I was heartbroken and I couldn't talk to anybody about it as that would have meant that I was telling somebody that I was gay. I went out with a guy for about a year and had the straightest relationship imaginable until the former friend cornered me at a party to ask about my sex life with my boyfriend. We sat and talked for ages and ended up ditching our boyfriends and going back to my house and sleeping together. I appreciate how much of a soap opera this sounds. I broke up with my boyfriend using the old there's no point being together if we're going to uni excuse and not telling him that I'd cheated on him with a girl. She on the other hand continued to go out with her boyfriend and went back to blanking me. 20 years later, she got in contact with me to apologise. It was earlier this year. I didn't know that I needed to have that conversation with her, but it really helped me come to terms with the shame that I had carried around with me for so long. Thank you for your awesome podcast. Lots of love, Nancy. Thank you so much for getting in touch, uh, Nancy. And I think lots of us have had that experience with our first, um, whether it be girlfriend or just person that we had, I don't know, some sort of feelings for. And I think I think you're right, we carry that shame for a really long time and it's really nice that you eventually got an apology and that must have, I can imagine, that really helped that weight lift off your shoulders. Uh, and I'm so pleased that Laura's episode meant so much to you last week and I'm sure lots of people are, are nodding along right now. So thank you for getting in touch and uh, have a great week. Okay, here's the next one. Hi Susie, I stumbled upon your podcast today through the Loud and Proud playlist on Spotify. And I feel like I've arrived at home, in a community where everyone is welcome. Gay, bi, trans, straight. I'm originally from the Balklands, and since the age of six I knew I was gay, and correlated so much to so many of the stories in this podcast. I've been lucky enough to have lived in several countries, and most recently in the UK, where I live with my partner and a very naughty beagle. Apparently they all are, he says. And we recently bought our place in East London. How exciting, right? I wanted to go back and share my story, as we all know that unfortunately every coming out story has its struggles. And though I am where I am today, it took many years and it's been a long journey of accepting myself and the realities that I can have a happy, loving, queer family. When I was growing up in the Balklands during the 90s and 2000s, being gay was out of the question. There wasn't a single person I knew around me that identified as gay. And the verbal and physical abuse towards the gay community was a daily occurrence. So I decided to hide my sexuality for many years which brought lots of insecurities and anxieties. But it also meant that I lost a childhood and teenage years of not being able to fully fall in love with a boy and have that classic teenage heartbreak. 
It wasn't until I moved abroad that I realised I have to be true to myself and accept my own sexuality, as I could see in my new surroundings that being gay is beautiful and accepted. I came out to my mum shortly after accepting myself as gay, as she was the most important person in my life. My coming out story did not go well, and unfortunately our relationship went quickly downhill, from best friends to a long few months of her coming to terms with me being gay, as this was not something that was acceptable in the Balklands. And there's still a big stigma today. Unfortunately, she passed away about six months after my coming out, suddenly from a heart attack. And I've spent a few years blaming myself ever since, feeling guilt that this was all because of my coming out. Now I know better, and that she loved me for who I was, no matter what. Ever since, my family and friends have been very supportive by being exposed to what being gay means and meeting my partner. I can say that I'm now the only openly gay person in my hometown, and that can serve as an example to hope for both young and old, queer and straight people, and that being gay is okay, and everyone has the right to accept their sexuality and be truly who they are and not be defined by their queerness. I hope this gives a glimpse of visibility to every young person, parent, neighbour and friend that being gay is okay, and we should proudly share our stories as we don't know who we are going to touch every single day, virtually across the world, as visibility matters. I hope that one day we won't have to come out anymore to ourselves or to the world, and simply we can be who we are and love who we love. We pave the way for the current and future generations, and we live in a time, thankfully, where things are getting better, and we can show who we love. Sending you all the love, and to every person listening for your inspiring podcast. Oh, that got me in the feels right at the end. Did you hear that in my voice? Um, I think you pronounce his name Dayan. Um, thank you so much, Dayan, for getting in touch. Welcome to the podcast. You're a new listener. Um, I'm really pleased that Spotify have been um, plugging the podcast. I didn't know that. So that's very nice that I'm on a playlist. Um, thank you so much for getting in touch and for sharing your story. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, I really hope too that one day we won't have to come out. I hope one day this podcast won't need to exist and that we can all just be who we are and love who we love, just as you said. And you're right, we do pave the way for future generations. And um, yeah, thank you so much for getting in touch. It's very kind of you to take the time. And um, and thank you to everyone that, that got in touch. Um, I do read all of the emails and I'm always blown away by how much people share with me. And sometimes I share them and sometimes I read them and think maybe, maybe I won't share this one today. Maybe I'll share it in a little while. Or um, maybe actually this person doesn't want me to share this podcast. It feels very, um, it, maybe they just wanted to share it with me. But um, I do read all of them and say thank you for getting in touch. Okay. Let's move on to today's episode. It is with the brilliant Reverend Richard Coles. As I mentioned earlier, I think this is a pretty special episode. I hope you agree. Let's go to that conversation now. Listeners, today's guest has one of the most varied careers I have ever come across. From musician to pop star to Church of England parish priest and broadcaster, the Reverend Richard Coles is, of course, known for the chart-topping band The Communards, but he came to his faith in his late 20s and is now known for his kindness, humour and relatability. Indeed, audiences have enjoyed him as co-host on BBC Radio 4's Saturday Live, Have I Got News For You, QI, Mastermind, Master Chef, Strictly Come Dancing and a particularly funny episode of Would I Lie To You. Back in 2013, he said, I don't have any concerns that God is cross with me for being gay and eventually the church won't either. Welcome to the show, Reverend Richard Coles. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Um, that's very flattering build-up. I'm going to have to remember to be kind of nice and, and relatable. 
<laughs> now, the first question that I want to ask you is, what should I call you? Richard. Richard. Okay, good. You know, it's really interesting, um, Susie. People sort of agonise about that a bit. And um, and then they call you what they think vicars are called because they've seen it on telly, but that's usually not right. So you get a sort of strangled reverend or something, yeah. which is sort of squirm-inducing for all concerned. But I've always <laughs> thought that Christian names for Christians are probably kind of right really that does sound about right now are you coming to us from do you, you live in the vicarage yeah i do yes i'm sitting in my study at the moment how nice and have you well, been you say nice it's an absolute tip and in fact if people were to see it see the chaos in which i live and work they would be appalled and um have you got two dash hours <coughs> oh, oh yes, what an excellent i mean that was a perfect cue he was listening that's Pongo, and then right. uh, he's the noisy one, and then Daisy is less noisy and quite. She's having her nap actually in the afternoon. Right. She likes to have a little nap. Um, and have you been playing the accordion? Because I, I, I listened on something that you started the accordion in a few months ago. Is that right? That's right. It's been well just before lockdown actually. So I've been learning the accordion in lockdown, and it's my lesson tomorrow. And my teacher Yanis has just sent me a very complicated Latvian folk dance which I'm going to need to master before tomorrow. But I, I tell you something, for lockdown, um, learning a musical instrument is very good. I highly recommend it. The two things I've learnt uh, are very usefully undertaken in lockdown, gardening and learning the accordion. Yeah, it's not, it might, you must feel a real sense of achievement of having done something something different. Uh, and also it's good where you get results. It's quite, cause I, I like washing up too, and I think it's because <laughs> at the end it's finished and you can look at it and you see, oh, yes, job done. And with the accordion too, um, if I've got I've got a rather fiddly left-hand button sequence in A Carnival of Venice, and I've been, I think I've just about cracked that now. Were you always quite musical growing up? Because I know that you play, you play a few instruments, don't you? Well... Not very well anymore. I mean, yeah, I was. I, I was a chorister when I was. I mean, before when I was, I started to learn to play the piano when I was four. My grandfather was a pianist, and uh, my great aunt was a fiddle player. So I played the violin as well from quite early on. And I was a reasonable pianist when I was a teenager. Um, the violin sort of went by the wayside, and then I I also played the saxophone, but um, I don't play that anymore. But I do just play piano a bit, a bit of organ. And mm. um, actually, mostly accordion. Did you like performing as a child? Because it's quite—I mean, it's quite an unusual thing to have a priest that's such a good broadcaster. Because I've, you know, I've obviously been aware of you and I've seen you on stuff. But leading up to this interview, I rewatched sort of "Have I Got News for You" or the episode of QI that you're on, and you're very good in front of the camera. Well, that's interesting. Nice of you to say so. I mean, I think I have always been a performer. So I was uh, i was a chorister when I was a kid, and I was head chorister. So hello, Spotlight. Hello, Stage. <laughs> grab some of that. And so from a very early age, I was i was kind of performing and comfortable doing so. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, it doesn't phase me. I know it phases some people, but I quite like that. Yeah. Lots of vicars are performers, though, you know. It's a very performer-friendly occupation. Well, that's what I was just about to ask, because, you know, a lot of it's to do with, you know, storytelling and I don't know, christenings and marriages and all the things, and obviously funerals as well, everything that you do. You know, we've all heard about a, a vicar that's not had a lot of confidence or that's not been that's not been able to sort of grab the parishioners, but it feels like you're someone that can really do that. I think that's true. I mean, I think I am sort of performance as part of my makeup. Mm. I'm not sure it's all because often I find the most memorable, for good or ill, experiences I've had with clergy have been with the ones who are not particularly slick performers. And there are certain hallmarks. I mean, if it's a good preacher, 
mm-hmm. is very often not smooth, if you see what I mean. Right. And uh, sometimes it can be that which surprises you or grabs you or has the ring of truth about it. Polish in the pulpit or, you know, or parsonical polish can sometimes be a little bit hmm, not right, I think. Yeah, I guess there's something about it feeling very real if someone doesn't feel super polished. It doesn't feel like it's something that's been overly rehearsed, I guess. You've only got it with singers too. I mean, sometimes I think the singers that I love the most are the ones who didn't pass their grade eight, if you see what I mean. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. It's hearing that bit of sort of fragility in the voice that sometimes is sort of most grabbing. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, there's a th- uh, saying in Christianity that we are cracked vessels, but the light shines through the cracks. And there's something about cracked vessels that I get. Yeah, I, I get that too. I get that too. So we sort of do this sort of chronologically uh, in, in a way. Um, so you grew up being sort of quite musical and you were being a, a chorister. And did you do that until you hit puberty? Is that right? And then that your sort of singing career... Yes, it was my first experience of being a has-been, was at 13, <laughs> because my, my voice broke, and um, and with it went my glittering career as head chorister. So I went from being sort of centre stage, and I had, lucky, I had a very nice voice when I was a boy, and then um, very few adolescent boys have nice voices, it wrecks your voice. And so mm. I had this re- weird experience of being a has-been at 13, which is good preparation, I've been a has-been so many times now, I can't remember at what stage of my life and career I was the thing. <laughs> And at what stage I was the has-been, they kind of overlap in the end. But I suppose if you're fortunate, if that's the word, to be a chorister in a, you know, in a good Anglican choir, you you know you are singing to a professional standard mm. while you are literally in short trousers, which is why I think so many people who have careers in music in, in Britain, particularly in England, are very often have come through a choral foundation because it's a great start. And wait, did you grow up in quite a religious household? No. Um, my parents were sort of nominally religious. I mean, both of them would go to church, but it really was three times a year. But um, I think both of them would describe themselves as believers, but in mm. that very sort of Church of England, uh, typically English sort of way. My father hated anything that carried a smack of enthusiasm about it. Or <laughs> right. Anyone being earnest, he couldn't bear that. Okay. And, um, and if anyone was a bit religious, he would call them, he was a very gentle man, but his sort of worst abuse for anyone would be to say they were a bit weird. Right. And if anyone was kind of over-religious, he would think that a bit weird. He couldn't bear embarrassment. Oversharing, he would have been so poorly suited to our times because oversharing for him would have been unbearable. I mean, and it's and it's what I've made a career out of, so I'm... I'm well, me too. I'm... <laughs> it was a great, grave disappointment to him. <laughs> I'm sure you're not. Um, obviously, we've got on to your um, sort of your career as a. Did you call it a career as a priest? I don't know if that's the right word to use. But well, there. I mean, there there is a career. The priests do have careers, but it's better conceived of as calling. I think, yes, that's that's the word yeah. I was going to use. Um, but did you feel that sort of affinity to the church at that young age when you were going and singing? in the choir and... Yes, I did, although I didn't know that's what it was. I always felt very much at home in chapel. I loved the music and I liked the people, but I was certain from the age of eight that the whole it was a load of hogwash. And I started to, there was the School Choir Atheists Club when I was about nine. There was a School Choir Atheist Club? Yeah, yeah. So me and my, me and my friends, Matthew and Porky, we started the School Chapel Choir Atheists Club and... Uh, 
we would refuse to bow our heads in prayer. And we used to play poker dice during the sermon sometimes, but we got that got some squashed. Yes, I'm sure. But there was always an affinity to the to the place and to the people. Yeah, and I mean, I think you don't have to. If it's very common again, you don't have to be have a scrap of uh, religion or faith in you to find um, churches and cathedrals or temples, mosques, synagogues, wherever, to be places that have a distinctiveness and you kind of sense that stuff goes there that doesn't go anywhere else. And so I think I was one of those people. Then what happened when I got to my 20s was that a kind of a circuit fired up and I realised that that sort of came into fuller consciousness so it wasn't just a sort of unconscious intimation. It became something sort of explicit and that required me to kind of embrace it and engage with it and focus yeah, I think you're so right about it being a place where sort of nothing else happens. And it's, I, I went to a Catholic school, I went to a C of E junior school, and I still love being in church, though I don't consider myself to be a particularly religious person. My girlfriend's family always go to sort of, we'll go to midnight mass or we'll go to a Christmas Eve service. And there is something that's very, I don't know, it's community, isn't it? You feel like you're surrounded by, it's nice to be surrounded by people that are all singing. I think it's community. Yeah. And that's really important. And it's very often eroded in one way or another, although there are different versions of doing community. But I think I think it also connects you to your own past, partly because so many of us grow up, you know, with nativity plays mm. and with all things bright and beautiful, changing perhaps now. <laughs> but I, I think the stuff that informed your childlike, childish imagination is very powerful. And the older I get, the more I see that what I am today, the foundations for it were laid then. And um, and I think that's important. I mean, I notice a lot at Midnight Mass because we get a lot of returnees at Midnight Mass here, people who come home to their families. Yes. And it's important for them to come and sing a bit creakily the desk count to a little town of Bethlehem <laughs> and gather at the crib at midnight because that's an extraordinarily powerful thing. And it draws families together, but I think it not only draws families together, I think it draws personalities together too. Yeah, and the familiarity of it is also really comforting. Yeah, exactly, and that you are standing in the place where perhaps you stood when you were a child and singing the tune you learnt when you were a child. Those are, those are powerful. So before we get to... Um... The calling. I, I read somewhere, and I, I always need to check things are true. But I did read an article that, uh, an interview with you, that you came out to your mum when you were sixteen with the song "Glad to Be Gay." Is is that That's true? Funny. Yes, it is. I, I was. A, I wanted to come out to my mother, and it was a sort of difficult conversation to have. So I kind of, I thought rather subtly, um, lubricated the wheels of that conversation by playing her "Sing If You're Glad to Be Gay." But I did play it for I think five or six times before she said rather weary. You're trying to tell me something. And I said, Yes, she said, You're trying to tell me that you're gay. And I said, I know I am. And, uh, and that was that. And from what age did you know that you were? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, when um, sexual desire became knowable, which I suppose was puberty, mm. I, that, there was no hesitance, no, no difficulty in me understanding that. But in retrospect, of course, the components of it, I think, were probably present before. Mm. Um, although that's a kind of speculative psychological enterprise, which I'm maybe not qualified to do. No, but, no, no. <laughs> a friend of mine, um, she when her son was eight, she said that she thought he might be gay. 
And I said, oh, why do you think that? She said, I don't know, but would you talk to him? And I said, okay. And so we went for a walk one day and I said to him, his name's Freddie. I said, oh, Freddie, what sort of things do you like? And he said, I'm absolutely captivated by Victorian neo-Gothic church architecture. And I thought, yep, you're gay. And, <laughs> and it turned yes. out to be the case. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think there's, we've had lots of conversations, well, with friends and both on the show about those moments where you sort of go, oh, yeah, that was, that was maybe a clue. Yeah, I think what I know now, which I didn't perhaps took a while to understand, was that there is not one way of being gay or ending up LGBTQ. You know, there are all sorts of different, everyone's experience is different. And uh, you tend to think, don't you, that your experience, particularly if it's very charged, um, will be very like everybody else's experience, and it's simply not. Well, that's the thing that we've learned from doing this show. I sort of wanted to create this show because I wanted to create something positive about our experiences and the journeys that we take in order to sort of become, uh, to have a happy life, sort of engaging in who we are. And that's the thing that we found from doing the show is that, that you know, there's a, oh, so many stories and so many different ways to sort of get to that point. And we also have listeners that write in, tell us about their coming out, and I share them on the show. And it's been... Um, it's been amazing to hear so many people and, and lots of people that get in touch that are that are still in the closet and maybe quite happy in the closet or live in a country where they can't be out of the closet. I had a conversation with somebody yesterday whose sister has just come out as gay at the age of 52. Fascinating story. Yes. Not it, like mine. It's Yeah, it's really interesting and it's really important that all those stories have a moment and it's not just one or the other. Yeah, I'm nosy. One of the reasons why my mother always thought that I got ordained because I was nosy, and it's a great job for a nosy person, and it is. <laughs> but um, I, I'm kind of really interested in how people get to where they get to, especially if that journey has been a difficult one, that's been mm. full of challenges. Um, what that produces in people, the sort of shape of their lives and who they are and how they engage with other people, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is fascinating. Well, I'm going to continue to be uh, nosy with you. I hope Do. that's okay, Richard. I like being the, I like being the object of other people's nosiness. That's too. great. Um, so how was it after you came out? Well, funnily enough, I mean, I, I went through a, a rather traumatic teenagehood, as lots of people do of my mm. age and background, because if you realised you were gay in one of the late 70s or middle 70s um, in Middle England, uh, that was not something which suggested a life rich in fulfilment lay ahead. Mm. So it was difficult to admit. And also I was in an all-boys English public school where if that were to have been known or known widely, uh, you would have not had a particularly easy time of it, I think. So actually coming out was a major breakthrough. And But when it did, funnily enough, afterwards, that was the hardest time. I think often it's when we step into the light that can, be, that can have quite a, a tricky consequence because you face up to a reality that you've perhaps managed to avoid before and that was true for me and I had a very bad patch when I was 17 which ended up in me being admitted to a psychiatric hospital after a suicide attempt so I had three months in a psychiatric hospital which was one of the most enjoyable three months of my life really oh it was so good it was such a lovely hospital and the people were so great and uh, I also discovered I had a nat- the only natural aptitude for any sport I ever got, I discovered, which is the trampoline. <laughs> so we used to go trampolining on a Wednesday afternoon, and I took to it like a duck to water. I could sort of do anything without trying. I'd love to imagine one now in the vicarage garden. No just, trampolining just sort of now. see as they go past. 
Well, I had a go on one a little while ago. Uh, my uh, some friends of mine got some kids who got one. I had a go on it, and I realised that my moves now are so <laughs> far behind the rest of my body that there's a sort of gyroscopic consequence if I drive a trampoline. And I'm worried that the world might tip off its axis if I kept that up for longer than 30 seconds. And also, I don't particularly need those sort of thrills anymore. Okay. <laughs> Um, so was it then, was it after, it must have been after that period, um, when you, when you came out of hospital that you decided to go to London? Yeah. I mean, I kind of buffered my escape from Kettering and my arrival in London with the two years in Stratford-on-Avon, where I went to a wonderful, uh, FE college, further education college mm-hmm. to do theatre studies, which was run by an amazingly inspiring teacher called Gordon Valens, to whom many owe a great deal. And Gordon created it was a, it was a bespoke vocational drama course, but at A level rather than at degree mm-hmm. standard. If you know what I mean? And uh, it was just a very liberal and fun place to be. Lots of people went through. I mean, Ben Elton was there, and Simon Pegg was there, and lots of people went on to do different things. Um, but it was really kind of it was a good place. If you were a sort of sexually renegade, delinquent middle class teenager, you couldn't have wished to be anywhere. And what did you think that it might be a life on the boards for you at that point? Did you think, oh, maybe I'll be an actor then? Yeah, I mean, my original intention was to be an actor. I think, like lots of, like certainly lots of gay men of my acquaintance, the idea of pretending to be somebody else was not that far away. If you see what I mean? Yes. So I don't know, actor or spy. I would have quite liked to have been a spy. If my brother was a spy, but that's another story. Uh, that would have been quite interesting, I think. But I wasn't very good at it. That was the trouble. So I, I liked everything about being an actor and could you know, imagine myself very easily in that role. I just unfortunately wasn't very good at it. So I started doing music, really, theatre music, which was how I first started earning a sort of living as a musician. So were you like in the pit in the West End then? I did a little bit of that depping uh, of just sitting in for other people. I did rehearsal piano. So when they were you know, casting a show, a musical, I remember I did... Um, I did Hello Dolly with Danny LaRue at the Prince of Wales Theatre. And so I would do that. It was very workaday sort of stuff. Uh, and then I did music for shows. So I used to do shows that kind of um, fringe shows. And then that gradually was what kind of got me working professionally as a musician. But I'd, uh, I'd acquired a saxophone by then because I got run over when I was 18 and I got criminal injuries compensation. Thank you. And with that, I bought a saxophone. And that was really my entree into the world of pop music. So if you'd never been hit by that car? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was an, an, a very a silver lining to that cloud in a very unexpected yes. way. Yes, yes. I mean, I do pay the contribution because I got some injuries which have plagued me now in my late 50s, but but I was very grateful for the saxophone. And then you were, you know, you were a proper pop star. I know. Don't sound so surprised. But I mean, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, no, really. I mean, if you, you would think, when you, my, my nephew Oliver, who is now 17, a couple of years ago he first became aware that his uncle I'd been in a pop band, and uh, he said to me, oh, Uncle Richard, are you, like, are you in a band? I said, yeah, I was. And he said, like, a real band? And I said, yeah. He said, like, were you on telly? And I said, yeah, we were. It was a proper band. So he looked me up on YouTube, and he found a video from 1986. At the end of it, he looked at me, and he said, you know, it's really funny. Even then, you can tell there's a vicar struggling to get out. <laughs> so you were with... Jimmy Somerville in um and and you had I mean massive hits that you still hear now that you still especially in clubs like the disco versions of stuff that you still 
here now. And I, I read a quote from, well, not from that time, but about you speaking about that time saying, we were young gay men in the 1980s, a very political time, and we had a purpose to bring Margaret Thatcher down with pop music. Yes. Where is she now? Ha ha. <laughs> Indeed. So did that really go hand in hand for you, the, the political? Yeah. I mean, for me, being gay uh, just meant you were another combatant in the fight against intolerance and inequality. And, you know, still is actually for me. Yeah. So uh, it, it was very much a sense. And of course, in, in those days, in our polarised world, I mean, polarised again now, but it was different then, um, you very much saw yourself just on the side of the of a revolution that was going to come in and bring liberation and equality for all. And that was a kind of broad-based political effort. So we were constantly forming alliances with all sorts of people and fighting our enemies, which was a common enemy, which was the Iron Lady and everything Mm. she stood for. And uh, there was a sort of clarity about that. You knew the enemy and the enemy knew you that I think made for, it was a very lively time. It was full of defeats and victories and that was... Uh, important. I think sometimes defeats and victories are not always so clear. And it must have been a, I mean, it must have been a scary time uh, as well because of the HIV crisis. I know you must have really seen it and yeah. felt it within the music industry. I mean, for me, it was, so I arrived in London in 1980. And for the first five years of that decade, it was all about pushing at the boundary. And we really broke through. And there was lots of really good things that went on with lots of amazing people. Mm. And then half of them died of this terrible virus retrovirus which came uh, unexpectedly and hadn't been foreseen and all of a sudden uh, you know young men in their 20s and in their 30s were dying of diseases that would normally not have you know troubled them mm. and it was devastating actually because it felt that having won this in this battle all of a sudden there was a whole new front and it was devastating it really was I think it's interesting now, 35 years on, when I talk to veterans of that experience, I see now that lots of us were very profoundly affected by I mean, We knew we were being profoundly affected at the time, but at the time it was so devastating, you just had to kind of get through it as best you could. And it's you know after 30 years of reflection and licking the wounds, you begin to understand quite how devastating it was. Because you must have just had to carry on with life. Despite you know people you know dying and you know, yeah, I mean it, it was you, you had to survive. It was mm. really was you know a survival matter for lots of us. There was a huge change in our activism, which went to be very focused indeed. Which was how do we do what we can to support people who are suffering the consequences of this, and more importantly, how do we wake the world up to what's happening to us and what might happen to them. And more importantly, I think, was waking the world up to see that gay men were human beings Mm. and to rescue us from being thought of as somehow less than human. And, you know, I think about this a lot now, a very resonant moment with the BLM. And uh, I I very readily understand the immense anger and frustration that is caused by decades of a kind of casual and nonchalant neglect of people refusing to see your dignity and your humanity mm. to the point where they will not think anything remarkable about leaving statues of slavers up in city centres. Why those things didn't get torn down years ago, I don't know. But I think we're at a very interesting moment with all that. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's the thing until, you know, until it's equality for everyone, it's not equality. Yeah, I mean, it, 
don't hold your breath because that no, I know. perfection is always going to be ahead of us. Yes. But I think you're right. I think, uh, and there's a moment, it's interesting, there's a decisive moment. Where I was thinking about this well, in my church. I've got the uh, Sir William Dolben is buried. Now, Sir William Dolben was one of the first of the abolitionists in the late 18th century. He put the first piece of legislation through Parliament which mitigated some of the horrors of the slave trade and later he went on to support Wilberforce. Um, and you just really, when you read about that, you realize there was just this kind of moment of realization when a group of people who were privileged white men, parliamentarians, wealthy, uh, entitled, in spite of all that, realized that this was a grotesque injustice and a blot on their on the lives of anyone who was caught up in it, and just had to do something about it. It happens sometimes. And do you feel, as a priest, it's your sort of is there part of it that's your duty to speak out on? On things like that, is it something that you're supposed to do, or, or something you're not supposed to do? Well, that's a very interesting question, Susie. Because on the one hand, yeah, we we have to be prophets and we have to raise our voices at the injustices of the world, but we also are reconcilers. And um, one of the jobs, particularly if you're you know, remember, if you're a priest in an established church like the Church of England, is that you have to kind of face equally people across the most unimaginably wide political divides. And that's quite difficult sometimes because I've had to learn to be immensely patient. I've had to learn to put to one side my own powerful feelings sometimes mm. because I need to be an honest broker for people who are uh, fundamentally opposed in ways that would are all but unimaginably difficult. And that's cost that, that costs you actually, but that's what we do. And you know, we there's always a cost to what we do. And have you found that a lot when it comes to your sexuality? I think being a public representative and a sort of high-profile public representative of an institution that explicitly denies you the equality that the rest of the world has grudgingly and sometimes willingly granted. That is quite difficult, yeah. yeah. But that's what I have to do. So I just have to find a way of working that or living with it not working as best yeah, I can. I guess just finding peace with it. Yeah, and also just realising that these are not, it's not the work of a moment, you know. These things mm. have long histories and possibly resolution will not come, you know, rushing towards you. It'll take a while. So after your time in, in the communards and your time on TV and your, and your top 10 hits, even though your nephew can hardly believe it, um, you went to, is it true that you went to Ibiza for a while? Yes, I right? did. After I stopped being in a band, I thought I'd take a sort of year out and just kind of collect myself. And actually, I sort of uncollected myself on the party island of Ibiza in a haze of ecstasy and sunshine. And um, I had a wonderful time, actually. I mean, I had a sort of year of a lost year. The first six months were the best fun I ever had. And the last six months were, fortunately, I can't really remember them. But it did end up with a sort of nasty crash. But kind of had to be done, I think. And was it then when you came home after you'd had this very hedonistic time, good and bad, I'm sure, that you you started to become, I don't know, more engaged with your faith, was it? Was it? No, it, it, it actually... F- it actually kind of caught fire. So I I can remember sort of two weeks before I discovered in church that I was meant to be there. I think I would have said that if I know one thing in an uncertain world is that I will never, ever, ever be religious. So I held out as long as I possibly could. But when it came, and in retrospect, of course, it's very parallel, obviously very like sexuality in some ways, but when it came, it 
I realised it had been coming on for a long time and the ingredients were all there. But I really, really didn't want to be a Christian and I certainly didn't want to be involved in the life of the church, but I just couldn't stay out in the end and I had to go in. And once I'd stepped in, I was overwhelmed by the realisation it was it was my homeland. And when you talk about, now I don't know if this is a question that you're not meant to ask a priest, so please forgive me if... Sure, you can ask anything. If you're not meant to ask this. But when, when people talk about a calling... I mean, how how would you even describe it? Well, I think it's. I mean, calling somehow suggests that you kind of hear voices and yeah. hear sort of uh, in the age of psychology, that of course would send people into a different uh, way of understanding it. I think I I say it's like something coming into focus. Something is indistinct, but gradually it just begins to come into focus, and then all of a sudden, boom! You see it in front of you, and you realise what it is. And then once you do that, everything changes. Not everything changes, but fundamentally you change. And Mm. then uh, you have to step forward and learn to live in this new landscape that's coming to focus with its customs and ways and topography. And and that's the the job of the rest of your life and beyond. And did you... um... Because we we actually get quite a lot of people writing. We've had a couple of different people um, on the podcast. We had um, Ruth Hunt on, and she sort of spoke about how she often feels that she has to come out as a lesbian, then come out as a Christian. Yeah. And Mohsin Zadi, who has re- written a book about growing up in a Muslim household and realising his sexuality. And I found lots and lots of people have emailed in, sort of very comforted by the idea of there being a place for LGBT plus people within the church. Yeah, but when you were realizing, when you had that sort of moment of things coming into focus for you, did your sexuality ever feel like a barrier? No, never. I mean, never. I honestly have never felt for a second that God had any problem with me being gay. Absolutely none at all. Um, it's been problematic in terms of how you relate to the institution sometimes. But as a yes. bishop, as a bishop once said to me, all institutions are demonic. And I think, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're imperfect people. We are flawed. And sometimes we are egregiously flawed. And all, everything we do is evidence of that. So our relationships are problematic. Our families are difficult. Our commitment to the things we believe in is sometimes partial or feeble. And certainly the institutions that we create in order to advance things that are of high importance and value and high moral purpose um, fail and crash. And that's just as true of the Church of England as it is of the BBC, and it is of the Labour Party, lots of things to which I have committed my life. And it used to disappoint me because obviously you want everything to be great, but actually what you really want is everything to be authentic. And if it's authentic, then you just have to get used to trying to live in the gap between what we wish and what we achieve. And that's where everything interesting happens. And was it you know, the sort of step forwards that we've had for the the whole of the LGBT plus community, but also that within, you know, the church and with, you know, having, you know, you being you, you know, you being an an out priest, we have steps forwards like, say, civil partnership or equal marriage. Were they important to you? I think the real breakthrough in terms of, I mean, if you you look at the Church of England in some areas of the Church of England, which are particularly conservative around areas of sexuality, Mm. then you would find it a very sort of stiff and I think unwelcoming place, in spite often of people's genuine best efforts to try to find a way of kind of being uh, generous to people while at the same time holding to a particularly conservative line. Uh, Mm. 
But actually, most places, it's just not a problem anymore. In my own church, you know, I'm a vicar of a parish in Middle England. It's four and a half thousand people. You look at it and you'd think it would be behind the times. But it's, you know, we have lots of people who live here who are gay in couples and it's just fine. Nobody's bothered at all. Or if they are bothered, they're not that bothered. Yeah. Uh, and we just get on with it. So in terms of lived experience day to day, I've never had the slightest problem or felt, and I don't just mean in terms of sexuality, for example, we have, you know, we're a pretty monocultural sort of place if you look at us, mm-hmm. but actually we have people who come from different places and they're very welcome. We're an autism-friendly church. We have quite a lot of members who have autism or on that spectrum. It's just not a problem. We, I think, rejoice in the difference and diversity of people, even if that's not something that HQ always finds easy. That's so encouraging. To hear, and I'm yeah, and I'm sure it will be for so many listeners. It's, it's kind of not a big deal. I mean, I sort of forget I'm gay sometimes because it's just I think I, it's something which I've sort of just comfortably integrated into the rest of me, if you see what I mean. So yes. I just I just carry on being a vicar. And the, and the other thing, you know, I arrived here with with David, who's my my late partner, who is also a priest. And so when we arrived, they didn't only get him a gay vicar; they got a gay vicar with another gay vicar to whom he was civilly partnered, and. Uh, I mean, there was, I think, a bit of a sort of, uh, sort of apprehension about that before we arrived from some. Mm. But actually, the minute people get to know you, they relate to you as they do to everybody else, just as another person. You realise that the kind of categories by which we judge people don't often stand up to our experience of them as, you know. As people. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, may we talk about David? Yeah. Uh, how did you two meet? Did you meet I mean, I don't, I don't want to say vicaring because I'm not sure if that's a <laughs> no, word. That you're... Exactly vicaring. Well, he wasn't vicared. I was the vicar at that point. He heard me preach a sermon. I was uh, visiting a church in Norwich and David was on the PCC in that church, which is the kind of governing body of the church. He wasn't ordained. And uh, he heard me preach and then he came to talk to me afterwards. And then he said he was interested in pursuing ordination and could I help him with that? And I said, yeah, why don't you come and see me? And he did come to see me and it was all very proper and everything. And then we had this sort of long conversation. And then he said, I said, I've got to go to Evensong. And he said, okay. And then he said, I'd love to come and see you again. And I said, oh, well, why don't we make an appointment in, say, a month or six weeks? And he said, okay. And then I got a text a bit later on from him saying, don't you get it? Huh. And I thought, oh, oh, no, I didn't get it at all. And then when, as soon as I did get it, we just, that was it. Didn't look back. And how long before you got civil partnered? We met in 2007 and we got civil partnered in 2010. He made me, though. I didn't want to, but he said if I, if I didn't, he would run off with somebody else. Oh, really? Yeah. Why didn't you want... Well, why weren't you sort of... Because we weren't living together at the time. Because he was he had just finished theological college, so he was uh, he'd, he'd done his training and then he was off working as a curate in Norfolk. And uh, so I thought it seemed mad to be have a civil partnership and not actually live in the same place. And I'm always slow to arrive at a decision, and he was impatient, so in the end he made me. But he always was very good at making me do things. Yes, I um, I listened to a, a beautiful podcast where you were talking about him. Uh, I think it was one with your friend, and you spoke about how he encouraged you to do or made you do things that you maybe wouldn't have done, but you're pleased that you did. Yeah, he was very good at that. He did make me, obliged me to kind of live out of the sort of um, selfish world of comfort and flattering reflection that we want to live in sometimes. And how long were you married for? Was it, it's about 10 years, I suppose? 
Yeah, I mean, we weren't we weren't married. We were civilly partnered. We were not we're not able to marry under current rules of the Church of England, which was um, galling for him. Yeah, he found he found that very difficult, and uh, I mean, I didn't particularly like it, but uh, I was more readily accommodating of um, Church of England. Uh, but the deal was that the minute we retired, we would upgrade, as he called it, to marry. <laughs> Um, so that would have happened, but uh, unfortunately, I lost him, and uh, so that's not going to happen. Is that something that you think will change within the church? That what you know in the future, a couple like you and David could get married? I don't know. I really, really hope so, but at the moment, it would be difficult to see that happening. We're very divided about it, and there other denominations have no problem with it, and other denominations have what they think is an insurmountable problem with it. So how that plays out, I really don't know. Mm. And did you, um, are you allowed to, you can perform civil partnerships, presumably? No, absolutely not. You can't. Not. In fact, there's a legal reason for that. It's that as, a, as a Church of England vicar, I'm a registrar, but uh, ex officio. So I could be a registrar for marriages, Church of England marriages in church, but I absolutely cannot um, trespass on the territory of the civil registrar who would take care of all the other ones. Oh, right. I just, I just assumed because you and, and David could do that, it would make sense that... But, you know, it's funny in a way, when we did that, we sort of stopped being vicars and did that as sort of uh, as just British citizens, if you see what right. I mean, so we took advantage of the law. But um, it's not something... Interestingly, the law does not permit me to do that because of the it's a, it's a jurisdictional thing. The church registrar and the civil registrar, they, they don't overlap. Did you have to ask like a, a bishop or anything whether you were, whether it was okay to do it? No. No. I mean, some would say that it would have been perhaps prudent to do so, but I've always thought, A, I don't particularly want to make a bishop's life any more difficult than it already is. Right. B, I don't particularly need to, and C, there are certain things for which it's always better to seek forgiveness rather than permission. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. So how has life been for you since sort of losing David? Have you found that your faith has been has helped? Uh, that's sort of pretty steady state, actually. So, uh, I mean, nothing in losing David has really affected that. Uh, and I take such comfort as I can from the belief, the fa- you know, faith in the idea that this is not all there is and that beyond the horizon of this life, there's a new life and a transformed life and a better life and we will know each other again there. Um I just wish he was still alive, though. I really, really miss him. And I just wish he would walk walk in the door, like every widow I know. Yes. Yeah, of course. And it must have been, I don't know, I suppose being, you know, the, the current climate in the UK and the fact that we've all been you know, maybe by ourselves a little more, I'm sure that you've had, you, you've been able to sort of continue, I suppose you must continue working as, as a key worker. But I guess even more so now, we're sort of relying on our loved ones more, maybe. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. It's interesting. One of the interesting things about so many interesting things about lockdown, but one of them for me has been enforced idleness. So uh, I, I, I tend to work, I like working. And also, if times are tough, then I will work all the more. Perhaps that's a distraction or something. And one thing that happened in lockdown was. I mean, I've got plenty to do, actually, but I would sometimes just sit in the garden with the dogs in an afternoon and not read. I can't read, actually, since David died. I've sort of concentrated, powers of concentration have been affected. But I just was conscious that there were sort of tectonic shifts happening very deep and very mysteriously, and I just had to let that happen because, mm. you know, grief is not a 
you don't acquire techniques to handle it. Actually, it's something that happens to you and you just have to keep going, really. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I've got a couple more questions before I give you your afternoon back. Thank you okay. so much. <laughs> no, it's a pleasure um, talking to you. For, to, to speaking to me. I know that so many people will really thoroughly enjoy this episode. Um, here, here's a question that's not really related to anything else that we've spoken about. Well, it's related to you being a priest. But when you say, just I'm, I'm just wondering what people are thinking while they're listening and questions they would ask. But when you say about being busy, being a priest, what, what is your day-to-day as a priest? Is it visiting parishioners and... I mean, it's a, one of the interesting things with lockdown is that there's a kind of, um, you know, the kind of rota of, we just simply can't visit. And the people who most appreciate and need a visit, the elderly and housebound, mm. are precisely the ones who are most vulnerable. So we've had to work out other ways of doing that, which is through phone and through different kinds of contact. Um, so it's all been a bit weird in lockdown. Of course, not going to church has been extremely weird. But mm. normally, it's all sorts of things. There's quite a lot of passing trade. So there's a kind of knock on the door. There's people call. There's walking around, talking. A lot of it is you act as a sort of touchstone for what's happening in people's lives. So often, that's obvious. If someone is in distress, then they will come to you and they will need to talk to you and you'll need to try to find a way of helping them to figure out what's happening to them and what they might do about it. Mm. But a lot of the time you're there, you're sometimes a f- sort of a lightning conductor for their anger or anxiety or disappointment and you have to sort of soak that up too. Sometimes people, I don't know, I think it's, you know, look, most people don't go to church, of course, and the sort of customs and habits of our grandparents' era have all but gone. But I think people still, there's something about a dog collar, there's something about someone, there's something about the priest figure that I think is still kind of resonant for people. It still stands for something. And mm. the quality of relationships you have in that role is really immensely moving and rewarding and stimulating and challenging. Mm. And uh, I wouldn't want to be anything else. Well, it sounds like you're very, very good at it. And I think that the thing that you've managed, to, like for someone that sort of grew up going to church a bit, I sort of always saw priests as, I don't know, not very welcoming or not very sort of a bit scared of them. I'm sure, you know, we were like a rowdy school group coming from the local Catholic school and they were thinking, oh, this is a lot today. But I think that's something that you've, you've done so brilliantly is you you're so relatable as a priest that it feels like it doesn't make, I don't know, for me, it doesn't make faith seem like something that's so out of reach. It's interesting. I'm really nice of you to say so. And and, and, I, and I'm sometimes conscious, though, that I, if people, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, that the, the kind of expectations of priests that people have who aren't churchy people are sometimes very different from the expectations people have who are churchy people and kind of working out what, you have to sometimes think, what does this person think I am? right how can i I relate do you know what i mean yeah 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 Um, totally and sometimes you forget if you are a churchy person that for lots of people the stuff that you just take for granted is completely invisible or mysterious to them so you have to constantly work about interpreting and that's something i think I, i really enjoy doing which is trying to find a way of interpreting the church to the world and the world to the church if i can put it that way absolutely uh the final question is the question that i ask everybody and it's um if you could Sometimes I suggest you you sort of phone call your younger self or, you know, we get a lot of young people that listen to this podcast that uh, are maybe in a, in a point in their life, maybe similar to where you were not long after coming out and not 
knowing exactly who you were to share or, or, or sort of having feelings of anxiety or even depression. Um, what advice would you give to those people about, I don't know, about living an authentic life or working out how to get there? I would hesitate to give anybody advice because it's usually unsolicited and often ignored. <laughs> yes. I think I would just, I, I keep a quote of Mother Julian, who was uh, an anchorite in Norwich in the Middle Ages, and she said, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And I think I would just want to say, that's how I, I kind of try to live in the light of that. That's perfect. Thank you so much um, for this conversation, Richard. I really appreciate it. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Me too, Susie. And um, I look forward to hopefully meeting you when this strange, strange time is over. Yeah. Well, I just thought that was so brilliant and so um, so moving. I listened back to that episode when I was walking around the park uh, the other morning and... I found myself getting quite upset, even though I'd had the conversation and I remember what happened. It was a lovely episode and it was so lovely to chat to Richard. And I think he's such a force for good in the world, whether you're religious or not. I really believe that. So thanks to him. Thanks to you for listening. As ever, please get in touch with me. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. But I rarely check it, if I'm honest. Twitter and Instagram a bit more. But you have a great week. And I'll be back next week with another podcast. I don't know who it is yet, so it'll be a surprise for you and for me. Take care. Bye-bye.